mean the pursuit ends. The pursuit or the preparation goes on for an entire life. It's, it's, uh, it's not at all uh, like the way some people approach marriage. Prior to marriage, you know, you're working on preparation, right? You get everything just right. She's, uh, she's standing right over there right now. Actually, she's sitting back over there right now. Suck it in, Mackie. And, uh, you know, if, if I had on a short sleeve shirt, I'd turn the arm just so, so that maybe this muscle, if it can still, if it can still pop out at this age, it'll pop out. You know, a vein or two exposed. Uh, have you, you know. And uh, that's what it's like before. And, and it's a lot of preparation, right? Some of you... Uh, ladies have an eight o'clock class. You got up at five thirty, you know, to, <coughs> to to see what can we do with moose again today, you know, kind of thing to get this thing underway, and uh, and uh, you know you get a good grade on an exam, and and she's sitting right back there, and, and it, boy, that's pretty good score. I feel a yawn coming on, Ooh, you know, did you get that? And uh, that's the preparation. And then some people get married, you know, preparation's over, right? It's like, uh, would you pass the Twinkies, please? And uh, who cares about what this is looking like? We're married, gotta love me, you know, it doesn't matter. Who cares what's going on here? Uh, I'm deteriorating, but gotta love me. Uh, it's not like that with, uh, with what I'm talking about, because... If, uh, if you're here to prepare for a life of service and you intend to stay on the leading edge in the days ahead, if you intend to impact this world for whatever God has called you to do, uh, then, then you've got to stay up to speed, folks. The pursuit never, ever goes away. It, it, it never ends. And uh, this is a time, though, that, that is kind of like the courtship period, if you, if you want to look at it that way in, in relationship to a marriage. This is a time of intense preparation for you. You have been afforded the luxury through financial aid, loans, parents helping, whatever it is, to have a parentheses in your life where you can focus on your studies in a way that you'll never be able to focus again. This is a great opportunity. And I hope I'm not beating the air this morning when I talk with you about it, because in some ways I'm trying to do a cerebral transplant. I'm trying to take a 45-year-old brain and plant it on 19 or 20 or 21-year-old shoulders. And I'm basically going to say to you probably what your moms and dads and aunts and uncles have said to you all along, and that is seize the opportunity, seize the moment, join into this pursuit in a wholehearted fashion that will yield for you maximum benefit in the days ahead. And then don't look at it like something that just ends. It may be something that uh, you're not afforded the luxury of concentration in the days ahead, but it will continue uh, nevertheless. And so I want to talk with you just about some basics that I think are critical for you in this pursuit process. The first thing that you need to bring to the table, or the first thing that you need to bring to this uh, pursuit is a heart of inquiry. A heart of inquiry. Uh, and a heart of inquiry means that you have a natural curiosity. Dr. Hughes uh, uh, alluded so well last Monday about one of some robbers of a heart 
of, uh, of inquiry or this natural curiosity, one of which is the television, right? And the old, uh, the old TV goes on and you turn it on and it starts making huge sucking noises and before you know it, your frontal lobe has been stretched from your brain to the set and it's trying to capture it. And uh, you just sit there and a cobweb grows from your nose to the volume control. And uh, Irma Bombeck says that any man that sits through an entire NFL season and watches every game should be declared legally dead <laughs> at the end of it. It just introduces passivity. It's bubblegum for your mind, isn't it? It feels good because it doesn't feel at all. It's a state of vegetation. And, uh, and consequently, natural curiosity is robbed through that because in a half hour's time, you get a million dollars worth of pizzazz thrown at you. I can't compete with that. I wore my brightest tie, but it's not TV. It's not a movie. It's not, uh, you know, it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger killing aliens or something. It's, uh, and your natural curiosity can, can just be uh, pulled right out of your mind by people who are spending big bucks to entertain you and vegetate you and, and uh, answer all your questions before you even have a chance to ask them. And part of what, what you need to uh, bring to this is a natural curiosity, and there are a couple reasons for that. First of all, it's because it makes the pursuit enjoyable. If you come to college without a natural curiosity, when you get the syllabus the first day of classes, all you're getting is a set of hoops that you have to jump through as a trick pony in the educational circus, right? Got to write that paper. Got to take that quiz. Got to lift that barge, tote that bale. I got to, you know, I just got to do this stuff. And if I do enough stuff and do it good enough, then at the end, I'll get a C. And I'll be so happy because I can check that one off and move on to the next one. And eventually I get a college degree. I'm having so much fun here. You know, isn't this a wonderful place to be? And for some folks, that's, that's it. It's how long can you bite a bullet? How long can you grit your teeth? Can you, can you hold out longer than your professor? Who will be left standing at the end of all this, you know, <laughs> kind of thing? And it's, uh, it's just one will against another. And it's not enjoyable at all. If you bring a natural curiosity to this place, you'll never take a class you won't like. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? You'll never take a class you don't like. You'll have some professors that you like more than others, but there will be something in every course that satisfies some part of your natural curiosity. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 8 and verse 3, he said, when I consider the things that you've made, and we don't stop and consider the word consider the way we ought to consider it, if you know what I mean. And that simply means that the psalmist was an individual that spent time pondering or reflecting, as Dr. Hughes uh, said about, uh, notice I'm quoting my boss here a lot. This is good stuff. Learn from this, okay, for how to, how to polish the apple in the future. Uh, but 
when you consider and really reflect on what God has done, that's, that's a result of natural curiosity. Implicit in his consideration was his curiosity, you see. And, uh, and, and so uh, it, it is just part of, of who we are as believers. And, and the second reason, it not only makes this pursuit enjoyable because your classes are satisfying your curiosity, uh, but secondly, the result follows this curiosity. Now, if you were to, to go down the street that I live on here in the Santa Clarita Valley, uh, Santa Clarita Road, which is part of the original housing track that was put in in this area, uh, and go down the street, uh, you'd see yards and kids. And you'd see yards that uh, are the product of people who do not enjoy gardening. And maybe they hire a gardener to come in, you know, and to, to mow the weeds or to knock down all the brown Bermuda this time of year. And there might be a little scraggly shrub sticking up here or there, but you can tell they don't enjoy it. And when you drive down the road and meet kids, you'll see some kids whose parents don't enjoy them. Sometimes people say, well, what's the secret to parroting? And I say, I don't know. The, you know the, uh, our kids aren't raised yet. But I think one of the things is enjoying them. Just enjoying the kids. I mean, here are these kids, and, and they're fun, you know, and they're great. And, and uh, I'd rather have them around than anything else that you could, that you could ever speak of. I, uh, I enjoy raising them, but their parents that their kids are a drag, right? It's just somebody I have to buy groceries for, somebody that needs more clothes. Oh, gee, now they're misbehaving at school. They're an embarrassment to us all. And uh, uh, they don't enjoy them. They're just a, a boat anchor that, that keeps them probably from doing what they'd really like to do. And you see the results, don't you? You see the results in the front yard if they don't enjoy gardening, and you see the results in a family if they don't enjoy children. And the fact of the matter is, is if you enjoy those things, the results follow along, don't they? And if you have a natural curiosity that you bring into this process that causes you to enjoy the learning process, to enjoy uh, picking the minds of, of these teachers that God has brought here of using the library that's that's here, using the periodicals that come in. Uh, you enjoy that process, the results will follow. And I've been at this thing a long time, and most of the time I can tell if you enjoy it or you don't. And I can see it in what happens later on. Okay, now where does this leave you as a person, as a student? You say, well... Boy, Mackie, you got to me on that one. You know, I'm just, I'm just gritting my teeth. And uh, so now we have the invitation at the close of point one. And I invite you to come forward and file out and go up to your dorm room. And please pack your bags and leave right now because you're not enjoying this, right? Is that the logical conclusion for the whole thing? And the answer is not. The, uh, the logical conclusion is for you after chapel to file out of here and go up to your room and uh, you know ask the Lord to give you a natural curiosity. Ask him to restore it in you. Uh, 
Uh, I wish I had three easy steps for getting it, but I believe the starting point is to ask God for it. Just ask him to make you a person who, who is, has a heart of inquiry. Really see if, 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 if he is a God that, can, that, is, that is big enough to do that. Pray for curiosity and see if he doesn't uh, give it to you. The second thing that you need to bring to this process is a heart of humility. A heart of humility or a teachable spirit. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 tells us that God resists the proud, or he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And one of the marks of pride would, is saying that I have the answers. I have all the answers. The mark of humility is to say, I don't have the answers. I need some answers. I need some help in formulating whatever it is that, 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 tr- that truth is in my life. I need help with that. That's a teachable spirit. That's one that is open uh, to what others may have to say. Now, I gave my heart to the Lord when I was 16 and a half. And uh, immediately when that happened... Uh, what the scripture describes as newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the word uh, really happened in me supernaturally from the inside out. I had no interest in scripture, the things of God, and went from uh, uh, total interest in, in scripture and the things of God and uh, began to study voraciously. And by the time uh, I was 18 years old. I had read. I was interested in church history. I'd read Schaff's work on church history and Karen's work on church history. I'd formulated a view on what I thought was a correct balance between dispensationalism and Reformed theology. Began to, to study uh, Greek uh, at the age of 18. By the time I was 19, I had read all seven volumes of uh, uh, Lewis Perry Chafer's Systematic Theology and read Buswell and just went head first into everything I could, I could read about it. And along with that, developed just this incredible, bloated, prideful spirit. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the Lord taught me some things. And you don't need to know how he taught me. All you need to know is why he taught me. But he taught me that, uh, that I was really a spiritual pygmy in the midst of what I thought was uh, a lot of knowledge. And he humbled me. Uh, he humbled me dramatically in all that. And prior to that humbling, when I would come to a sermon, when somebody was preaching the Word of God or I would come to a class setting... I came, uh, I came the way a judge comes to a gymnastics competition at the Olympics. At the end of the sermon, I held up a 9.8 or a 6.2. Or, gee, will you check your view of sublapsarianism? I don't think you got it right. And uh, I developed a critical spirit that, pro- that flowed out of a heart of pride. I wasn't teachable. 
And the Lord really taught me uh, through that and continues to teach me uh, what it means to have a teachable spirit. I don't think he'll ever uh, give up on, on that. But it's critical that, you, that as you approach this, that you be able to learn from everyone. I had a teacher years ago that said no one in life is a failure. At least they can go down as a bad example. And maybe what you're learning is how not to do it. But learning begins with the acknowledgement that I don't have all the answers. Historian Daniel Bornston says, The greatest obstacle to discovery is not ignorance. The greatest obstacle to discovery is the illusion of knowledge. People believing that they know what truth is, but not having truth and blocking real truth in that process. Higher education can become and has become in many places a bastion of intellectual pride. And I hope and believe that one of the hallmarks of the Master's College is intellectual pursuit that is clothed in humility. And if you walk into some college classrooms, as I have, and uh, raise my hand and I ask a question in the class, I could sort of feel the professor saying with the response, missile to middle midget, missile to mental midget, hone in on this guy, blow him out of the water, make sure he never asks a dumb question like that again, and I trust that you'll never encounter that here. You have the ability to be a learner in this environment. And you can learn in a number of ways. One is you can learn through gleaning the information from your professors. I mean, you've got some, some incredible opportunity now to, to sit in the classroom with incredible men and women with, uh, I mean, let's put it this way, okay? If Dr. Pilkey was halfway through his lecture and lightning struck him. And as a result of lightning striking him, his IQ was doubled. Would you know it? <laughs> You'd never know it happened, right? Because there's already so much there that doubling it is beyond what you and I could comprehend anyway. We have opportunity to study and I, by the way, I enjoy studying with them. If you go look in the registrar's office, which you can't do, it's against the law, ha, ha, ha. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, if you went in there, you'd see a transcript with my name on it, and you'd see I've, I've studied with some of the people that you're studying with because I enjoy going in and, and taking these classes with them. But uh, nevertheless, you've got opportunity to get that kind of explanation from uh, from wonderful teachers. You have opportunity to study with people who are godly examples. One of the differences between the pursuit here and the pursuit elsewhere is if you go elsewhere, there is a false dichotomy between the person and the professional. I mean, we see that in politics all the time, right? It doesn't matter what goes on behind closed doors or what goes on in a motel room somewhere uh, as long as they can do their job. 
And they would say in the, in the educational arena, it doesn't matter what a person is like morally, it doesn't matter what they are like uh, personally, just so long as they stand up in the classroom and give the right information. But we don't believe that. We believe in a biblical model where the life matches the message. And I would challenge you that, uh, to examine your professors in that way and see what they're like in and out of the classroom. Make sure that the whole package is present. And you can learn here uh, if you approach it with a teachable spirit by submitting to accountability. Every time you get a syllabus, that's accountability. There are dates when things are due. And, uh, and I, I function better in, in, accountable, in accountable settings. I wish I, I wish I were more noble. I wish I did more things on my own. But I know that there is value in having expectations that are set by people who care enough about me to hold me to them and not let me cop out when I, when I come up to them and say, you know, the dog ate my homework or or whatever the case may be, but they say, no, that was what we expected. And they won't let me play this tyranny of grace game with them, right? And say, but we're all Christians. You have to show me grace. You can't give me a bad mark for not having done that. That's not love. You know, that's, a mis- that's an abuse of love. A loving person says, if I hold you accountable now, I'm serving you well for the days ahead. I am honing you and preparing you so you will be more useful when you step out of this place and step into the Lord's service in, in a different venue. Ask God to make you uh, teachable. And uh, you may not enjoy the process because there might be some humility connected to it. The third thing that, uh, that you need to bring is a heart of discipline or a willingness to do the undesirable. And, and I could pull a number of different passages out of Scripture, but uh, as I was looking at First and Second Timothy this summer, and, and Mike and I have that in, in common unknowingly, uh, Mr. Forgerson and I, but uh, as I was looking at First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, I noticed some little words that I had read a, a hundred times, but they just jumped out at me as I had done a little background study on Timothy and the city where he was a pastor, and he says in verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, and here the words, remain on at Ephesus. Remain on at Ephesus. Ephesus was a tough place, and uh, it was a hard assignment for Timothy. And it called for discipline on his part. It called for a willingness to do the undesirable, I'm sure to continue to stay in a hard place and to minister. But discipline is not, uh, is not demonstrated in a desired environment. Discipline is not demonstrated when the going is good. Discipline is demonstrated in when you get in a class that you don't appreciate too much. And uh, your natural curiosity is not carrying you along the way you wish it would. That calls for discipline. When you get in a, in a course where the professor isn't uh, really matching well with you, your heavy content and the professor's too much uh, illustration, or you really appreciate illustration and the, that professor is heavy content, every word is laden with meaning, 
and is delivered in a somewhat monotone fashion. And uh, it's really not doing much for you. It's time for discipline. Now, one of the things about college that uh, is extremely valuable is for many of you, it's the first opportunity in your life to see what you really like. Uh, because uh, especially for freshmen, when you come to this place, a lot of the props have been taken away, right? Your mom or dad isn't asking you at, at 8 o'clock in the evening, have you got your homework done? Your roommate is not saying, do you have your homework done? Your roommate's saying, you want to play Frisbee? <laughs> How about volleyball? How about cards? How about anything but homework? Come on, let's go. And this is an opportunity for you to really see uh, what you are like. And a number of you come to, the, come to this struggling in the area of self-discipline. Uh, now, self-discipline, it, it, I've, I believe that it occurs as a result of external discipline over a period of time. External discipline when we're young becomes internal discipline over time. That's why Hebrews 12, for instance, talks about the discipline of the father. And in the moment when it occurs, it's not appreciated, but later on the children thank him for it because he did something hard to discipline them externally and it resulted in later on them being able to do hard things because they're disciplined people. Some, uh, some years ago, this individual has long since uh, moved out uh, of the area, but uh, we saw a classic example of that. We had a family that lived across the street from us, and, and uh, they had to liken their kids. They had that part down real good. They really liked their kids, but they didn't discipline the kids. And... Uh, and because that component was missing, everybody knew it. And one evening, I was out in the front yard, and I was watering my grass and uh, doing the hand watering and the pots and plants and so on and so forth. And I was in kind of a hurry because we needed to go somewhere, but it was a warm evening, and I didn't want them to dry up and stuff. And the little girl came across the street, and she said, Can I help you water? And I said, No, uh, not this evening but I'd sure like to have you come back and help me another time, okay? And she says, I'm going to help you water. Oh, yeah? <laughs> no, not this evening. Another time. I'm helping you water. And she reached up and grabbed the hose like this, and she's got a hold of it. No, not right now. Yes, I'm helping you water. And she took her legs and wrapped them around my leg. And she's holding on to the hose and she's got her legs around my leg. And I'm trying to water the plants at that point. And her mom is over in the yard across the street saying, Now, now, let Mr. Mackey water his yard. Leave him alone. He's got to finish up. Okay, you've had it now. One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters, two and seven eighths, you know, and on. And never did come over, left me to finish my watering. 
you know, with this kid uh, hanging on to me, she happened to get a little bit wet in the process. <laughs> hey, you know, water happens, right? I mean, <laughs> it's just, that's just the way it goes. But uh, <clears throat> one night, it was about 8 o'clock in the evening, it was a summer evening, and, you know, and it was getting kind of dark, and the mom had finally had it right to here. And she gave the kid a swat. Got a standing ovation in the neighborhood. <laughs> yes, let her have it, you know. <laughs> and because of that, if you revisit this person now as an adult, you'll see somebody that only does what they feel like doing. When the, in, when the cement of her life was being poured, there were no forms that were set up, and the cement took the form of whatever, uh, whatever it was going to take according to her own will or whim. And now there's no structure, there's no discipline, there's, there's only what, whatever I feel like doing. If it turns me on, I'll do it. If I don't feel like doing it, then I'm going to do something else. And uh, basically, you know, it's just let your gland be your guide, right? Whatever you're going to be doing, just do it. And so she'll take a class in college, and gee, I don't like that class. Drop, fail, you know, whatever the case may be. A lack of self-discipline. Some of you really need accountability in this regard. You need to rebuild the forms and try to... accountable. Give me some discipline. I've got to rebuild some things that are lacking in my life. Because if I don't do that, if I don't hang in there with it, I'm only going to be partially developed. I'll only be developed in the areas where my feelings were turned on. And I'm never going to be well-rounded in this pursuit. I've got to be willing to do the undesirable. Fourth, then, is a heart of focus a willingness to postpone the desirable. A willingness to postpone the desirable. I had the opportunity Sunday night of uh, spending some time with the chancellor of the college, uh, Dr. John R. Duncan, for whom the uh, student center is named and every opportunity I've had to spend with him uh, has always left me enriched. And uh, in, the, in the, uh, the, the message that he delivered on Sunday night, it came from Psalm chapter 90 and verse 12. It says, So teach us to number our days. So teach me to measure my life in such a way that I'm intentional or I'm focused about how I'm spending it. I'm not just defaulting to the point where it's happening to me and whatever happens, happens, but rather through the leading of God's Spirit, I'm intentional about what the rest of my life is going to be like. And he pointed out that the president of Princeton University, at the age of 40, sat down and, and, and took this verse to heart. 
and said, Lord willing, I've got 30 years left on the planet. How am I going to spend those 30 years? And he purposed that he'd spend 30, 30 years, or excuse me, 10 years in study, 10 years in teaching, and the last 10 years of his life in writing. Now that's focus. That's intentional. You need to be focused in order to stay on track with this thing. You've got to have uh, the goal in mind, as it were. Uh, and it's easy to get unfocused. My daughter, uh, Jill, who, who was mentioned uh, earlier as a freshman here, and we were, we were talking a little bit about what it's like at Masters, and it, it's, it's kind of different because uh, when you go to grade school or, or high school or whatever, you don't talk, right? You don't talk, you study. And the uh, teacher says, don't talk. But at Masters, it's not talking. At Masters, it's, why? It's fellowship. It's fellowship. And Hebrews 10.25 tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So, am I going to fellowship or am I going to study? If I don't fellowship, I'm sinning. If I don't study, I'm sinning. Which sin should I choose, you know, at this point? And you know that's a healthy tension. Should I be a burden bearer? Should I stay up till 3 or 4 a.m. with somebody in the dorm that is struggling? Or should I get ready for the exam that's coming up the next morning? What should I do in relationship to my Christian life as I, as I pursue an education? And if you're looking for an easy answer for me, you know, you've got to go someplace else. I can just tell you that uh, you're learning right now to balance competing ends in your life. And that, and that struggle is never going to go away. When I graduated from college, I still struggle with things that compete. Because I've got to get up and give, give a lecture. I've got to do stuff too, don't I? And, uh, and we're acting like I get up and give my lecture, but nothing happens in the dorm that I call my house. That I didn't have a child up all night throwing up and I was cleaning up after him. Or didn't have uh, a neighbor that was out in the street yelling and screaming and keeping me awake. Or didn't have somebody in the church that's calling me that's going through a trauma. You think when we come to the classroom, we're different in that regard? And the, and the fact is, no, all of us are called upon to balance the competing ends of our lives. You've got to split, spin your plates the same way I have to spin mine. And it may be that you have to choose how much can I do here and how much can I do there. And if you aren't stretched in this process, college has not served you properly. By the end of this four-year period, you ought to know what your limits are. Now listen, your mom is not going to like me for saying this. Because your mom wants you to order your life in such a fashion, maybe, that it's comfortable or it's easy. But I'm telling you that in this period of young adulthood, you ought to, you ought to push the limits a little bit. You ought to be in a point where you've got a little bit too much to do. Because you're discovering what your capabilities are, and some of you are more or less capable than others. Some of you might be able to carry 18 or 20 units, work 20 hours a week, lead a ministry team, 
uh, you know, focus on a relationship and do pretty well with all of it. And some of you are learning about yourself that you're having to pare back so that you can focus and keep, uh, keep the prize in mind with all of this and stay on track. And it's going to be different for different people, but the one who will persevere, the one that will see it through, will be one that focuses. Some of you will, uh, or I should, I want to say this properly, some of you during the course of, of the school year you know, may, may uh, commit sin that, that uh, I, I would consider to be maybe a gross sin, something that unfortunately will scar you. But I would dare say that the greatest majority of college students commit the greatest amount of sin with their alarm clocks. You know how I know that? because I'm an advisor and I talk with students about 8 a.m. classes. I teach 8 a.m. classes. I see what it's like to teach the walking dead. We're, you know, about halfway through the lecture, I want to call your next of kin to see whether we ought to pull the plug on your life support system, you know, because you're just not making it through the lecture. I know what that's like. I know the need to get to bed and the need to get up. When I was in college, you know, this is why when I was a boy's story, uh, when I was in college, I struggled with this as well and had a hard time keeping the focus on a daily basis, a morning basis. I'm a three-by-five card person. Uh, when I first came to the Lord, I was struggling with, uh, uh, with television. This isn't, I didn't mean this for this to be TV bashing week or anything, although it, it deserves it. Now, but, you know, I was struggling with what I was seeing and stuff, so I took uh, Philippians 4.8 and put it on a three-by-five card and taped it above the TV screen. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, you know, and just match the, the tube with the, 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 the card. And uh, I was struggling so with the sleeping thing, and so I, I took uh, a 3 by 5 card and taped it next to the alarm clock. And then I took the alarm clock and put it on the other side of the room, put it on its, most loud, its loudest and most obnoxious setting, so I had to get out of bed, walk over to it, and turn it off, and on the 3 by 5 card, I put Proverbs 6, 9, How long will thou sleep, O sluggard? <laughs> and every morning would look at that as I got over and walked over to that clock to turn it off. So to keep the focus, we have to be intentional, don't we? We have to make no provision for the faith. We have to order our lives in such a way that, uh, that the that we will be willing to postpone the desirable in order to achieve the prize, in order to get something that, that costs something. The last item that I would mention to you is a heart of character, a heart of character to be developed and to be maintained in this process. Your character is your promise for the future. Job 4, 6 says your, your hope for the future is your integrity. Psalm 78, 72 talks about God and it says it sh he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. What does that mean? It means that uh, your, your future hope in an individual is based on their past performance, i.e. their integrity. You're probably like me. You have members of your family or you have people who, who you've uh, made friends with 
and they tell you about something that's going to happen in the future. And they say, it'll be like this between us. Everything's going to be okay in the future. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And while they're saying that, your mental Rolodex is going around uh, bringing up different things that have happened in the past that cause you to believe whatever they're telling you is just horse feathers. There's no truth to it at all because they don't demonstrate integrity in the past that would make you hopeful in the future. But when God calls you to do something and uh, he brings his integrity to the, to the bargain, doesn't he? When he calls his people to do something, he reminds them that he brought them across the Red Sea, that he brought them out of Egypt. He reminds them that he fed them. He reminds them that he did this and this and this. And based on what he's done in the past, you can trust him in the future. Now, you've got two things, see, to develop here as a part of the master's college. One is academic preparation. And, and you've got to know that my heart beats for that. I hope that, uh, I hope that you know that. But the other thing is integrity or character. If there's one thing that, uh, that people are looking for in you, it's integrity for, that, for the future. And unfortunately, in the culture in which we live, if I come to this campus and I'm looking at you for employment in the future, it's illegal for me to ask you about it. I cannot interview you for your integrity. But I can tell you that there are people who are identifying the Master's College as a pool of integrity, a pool of character, a place where they can bring somebody in who works hard, a person who knows what they're talking about, a person who won't lie to them, a person who won't steal in the future. They're looking for academic pre preparation plus integrity. Sometimes uh, people will say in my relationship with students, well, you, you ought to treat them differently. Don't you know they're your customers? You're not my customers. I'm grateful to you for the tuition dollars that you've paid uh, that, that helped me put food on the table. But you're not my customer. You, my customer are your future bosses. And you've got one boss that will remain your boss for time and eternity, and that's your Heavenly Father. That's the primary person I answer to in this process. I teach and live before an audience of one primarily. And that other set of customers is whoever your earthly boss will be. Whoever is going to put you in a position where you will be serving in the future. And when I recommend you for that position, I'm going to think of two things. I'm going to think of how you applied yourself to your study. And I'm going to think of a heart of character that was demonstrated before me during the pursuit or while you were in process. And those two things coupled together will make you pleasing before God, to whom I hope you find yourself ultimately accountable. 
and before those who will use you in the future in a temporal, uh, earthly way as you seek to advance the kingdom of God in the days ahead. Hey, I hope you can remember one or two things we've talked about. More than that, I hope I've made an impression as I talked with you this morning. Thanks for listening to me. I don't tell you as often as I like, but I really enjoy t- teaching you and spending time with you. And uh, uh, you're just the delight of my heart. Uh, just thanks for, uh, you know, thanks for being here and engaging in this process with us. Let me pray with you as we close. Lord, thank you for this company of believers who have come together to pursue higher education. I pray that every part of it will bring honor and glory to you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.